0: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Rain Race Podcast. Today we have a special IndyCar preview for you guys. We have Adam Stern out of Sports Business Journal joining us. He seems to know everything when it comes to IndyCar news at the moment, and we actually went over some discussion points that I think a lot of people wouldn't have thought about, so it's very interesting. Uh, If you're new to the podcast, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, CastBox, and YouTube. All the links will be in the description on the YouTube video and on our Twitter, at Podcast. You can subscribe to us on any of those platforms so you don't miss a future episode. We have some more fantastic episodes coming up in the future that you're not going to want to miss. But without any further ado, enjoy. Season 2, episode 3 of the Rain Race Podcast. We have an IndyCar preview episode here today. Uh, and I'm already laughing because of our uh, our guest lineup here. We're missing Kyle Cuthbertson. Go figure, the one episode uh, that he would probably contribute the most to. He's not uh, available, missing in action, I guess you could say. But we do have Kevin Rollins. Hi. We have David Land. So I guess, you know, we still got the IndyCar knowledge here.
1: Yeah, you, you called me 15 minutes early, and I'm not going to let you live that down either.
0: <laughs> and we also have Adam Stern on the line. Uh, he is uh, an editor for Sports Business Journal. Pretty much the who knows what when it comes to future IndyCar news right now, so I figured he'd be quite a valuable resource for this episode.
2: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. All
0: right, so we got a couple things uh, to hit on for this episode. First off, IndyCar uh, 2019 uh, biggest change overall, I'd say, for the entire series as a whole is that NTT is the new presenting sponsor of the series. Um, also, David, I don't know if I can take this as a quick jab to you, but you said NTT Data IndyCar Series in your uh, in your video yesterday.
1: Uh, I but. may have been the first, <laughs> but I will not be the last. Yeah. I, I guarantee you Lee Diffie will do it at least <laughs> once on Sunday.
0: Uh, yeah, so NTT taking over Verizon for that title sponsor position. I didn't actually catch word of how much that deal was worth. I don't know if either of you heard. I th- wasn't the Verizon deal something around ten million per season?
2: Yeah, yeah. The deal came in around ten million for Verizon, between five million on their uh, spend to for the rights to IndyCar, and then five million for the media buy. And you know, according to what we're hearing, the uh, NTT deal came in right around the same. So, you know, whether it's a little bit more, a little bit less, you know, I certainly haven't seen the contract or anything like that, but apparently the deal is right around 10 million once again.
0: Yeah. So that's obviously, I know, um, also Verizon, they used to like plugging some of their, uh, exclusive things within the app. So I'd be curious to see how that plays out this year so far. looks like everything in the app is going to be pretty much free to everybody, but I haven't really seen anything to say otherwise so far. Uh, So that's quite interesting, Um, but I would be curious to see uh, what it does with the media side. I know you mentioned Verizon. They like to handle a lot with the media. Uh, There's been quite a few changes in the off-season. We're going to hit on some of those a little bit more with uh, new TV packages, especially some prominent ones uh, in Europe. But like I said, we'll hit on those a little bit later on. Uh, But I also want, want to talk about some of the new tracks that we're getting on this year's schedule. We lost ism raceway for better or for worse personally
3: huge loss i yeah.
0: think uh, i think that the tracks we got in return make up for it even if david would argue that coda is probably not going to be that exciting um i don't think well, i was
1: gonna go part... i was gonna go more gomer and say we lost an oval for a road course but yeah you know, that one works too
0: well <laughs> we have uh so yeah coda is joining the schedule that's going to be the first race after saint pete it's so, the week after St. Pete? Two weeks after St. Pete. Two weeks. Two weeks because after St. Pete. Because
1: Sebring is in the
0: middle. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what they do there. I, I mean, IndyCar did have a test there a couple of weeks ago. They actually had two tests, one uh, in late 2018. And uh, people already seem to be comparing F1 lap times with IndyCar, but I'd be curious to see what the racing product comes out of it. I know that F1 has been kind of, you know, it's a hit or miss when it comes to CODA. Generally, I don't think it puts on the greatest racing uh, for Formula 1, but we'll have to see what it can do with a completely different car with much less downforce. Uh, I think that it could be quite an interesting race.
3: Well, I mean, last year's F1 race was rather entertaining.
1: Well, I think I think one of the things that Coda has, Coda has working at its advantage right now is that the surface is starting to get nice and worn out, so you're seeing a lot more exciting racing from the track. But I do have a question for Adam and this re- regards uh, the business side of things, because that seems to be uh, Adam's wheelhouse, is that uh, Circuit of the Americas gotten a little bit of political doo-doo recently. Uh, they lost $20 million of state funding for missing some paperwork regarding human trafficking. Now, Adam, what have you kind of heard in regards to uh, Circuit of the Americas and their ability to be financially viable this season and maybe some of their events uh would would they suffer from losing that amount of state funding
2: you know i've been trying to get with bobby epstein the the chairman of coda and i'm still trying to do so so i'm trying to get from the horse's mouth which i don't have yet but i mean certainly you know not only did it start off as a 20 million dollar loss according to initial reports. But then further reports that there's actually more like $25 million. I mean, that is an absolutely staggering sum of money to lose. I mean, that is not even remotely close to a small amount for them. I mean, that, you know, because every year, you know, the F1 fee to pay that to host a race costs around 25 to $30 million. So, you know, they pretty much lost an entire year's worth of subsidies for, for the F1 race. So I, I saw an article, although I didn't read it. Um, I saw a headline that I think in maybe Auto Week that said, the F one race was certainly safer this year. So, you know, I don't know if that's a case of Liberty Media has said, Hey look, you know, F one we're you know, has said Dakota, Hey, look, we're gonna work with you, we're gonna figure this out. Um, or or what, but you know, there is absolutely no doubt that I mean that track was already for sale in recent years. Um, you know, wasn't it hasn't all you know, Bobby Epstein does a good job there, but you know, I think he's been looking to possibly bring in new partners or maybe even sell it in whole. So, I mean, I can't imagine in a million years that they would lose 25 million dollars and be a small deal to them. So, you know, we'll see if they can figure that out with the state of Texas. I mean, it seems like a kind of bizarre technicality. And then you've got you know, reports out there that it was actually F1 potentially that messed it up as opposed to CODA. In terms of now filing it soon enough so again you know i haven't been able to get from the horse's mouth in terms of bobby you know how big of a blow this is if they can't recoup it and furthermore you know is he still working to try and figure this out because it seems like it's you know a technicality that's not really productive unless texas as a state just says we don't want to fund this anymore and we're going to use this as our excuse so you know we're still trying to figure that out and hopefully we can follow up soon but I certainly think that this is a. If they truly are going to lose 25 million dollars that they expected to have, I have to think that's a devastating blow.
0: I'd be curious to see what that means for. I mean, the future of all events of that track. I mean, I know IndyCar at a lot of road courses like Mid Ohio, they usually get massive crowds. Uh, But Coda, I know that they've hurt pretty much in attendance for every race they've done except for Formula One, from what I've gathered. So I'd be kind of curious to see what sort of profit they can pull out of that race
2: um i've heard some initial attendance projections around 20k um but i'm not sure exactly what the hosting fee is and, and where they come out with that well we've seen
1: events come and go i mean it's been a revolving door at circuit of the americas i mean at one point they had v8 supercars alms world endurance championship i think moto gp i don't remember if they still have that event there or not um uh, but they just so Okay, so that's one of the ones that stayed around for a while. I mean, it's it's been such a revolving door. Uh, it you know, it almost seems like everything at that track, and it makes sense because it was built for it, is is revolving around the Formula One race. It's almost like I guess the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. You know, if the Indy 500 lost suddenly lost twenty five million dollars, uh, you you would imagine that that events like the Brickyard 400 would probably be in trouble. So. I don't know. It seems like something that, that I would worry about if I were IndyCar and maybe look for other options already, even though you just announced this uh, event.
2: And we'll have to see how it goes, but I mean, I can say this. You know, I had people at my office initially asking me, like, hey, look, is this a big deal for them? And again, I mean, you just go back to that one key figure that it costs. And I mean, this is an absurd amount. I mean, this is why F1 is getting in trouble. I mean, it worked in the old Bernie days, but is not really working these days they were potentially going to give away a, a race to miami for free because you know the 30 million dollar fee or 25 million dollar fee um it works for certain countries where they want to use it as a marketing expenditure to get you know tourists to come and whatnot but that's kind of less and less a, a model that the countries are using that's why mexico is, is potentially going to drop theirs you know the president of mexico has now diverted their funds away so the mexican grand prix, grand prix is in legit danger so you know, you look at the, the that sum and how that measures up, you know, the amount they lost is pretty close to how much it costs to host a race for an entire year. Again, I mean, I have no idea yet if, you know, this means they're going to seek new ownership or, or what's going to happen. But I, I can't imagine in a million years that this is a sum that they're just going to say, hey, look, we lost $25 million, no big deal. I mean, I don't know what the ramifications are yet, but they could be substantial. So, again, you know, it's a little bit speculation what that means, but but this is no small sum for sure it doesn't it seems like a technicality that they could work out if they wanted to, right? I mean, it seems like if the state of Texas didn't want to lose this race and was really investing in this race, it seems like something that they could work out. I mean, I know that the spokesman for, I believe Texas Governor Abbott came out and said that, you know by law, they can't. you know this thing was missed. but you know, code is claiming that they actually did have it on file from the Moto GP race and that it actually should have been able to like, you know, essentially go over to the f one race. so, it just seems like an interesting situation, which smells a little fishy to me. I'm not saying by any stretch that I have any knowledge that, you know, Texas is not investing this race and they're using this as an excuse, but you can't rule it out because it's just a, such a weird situation. So I think it'll be interesting to see if maybe CODA can somehow figure something out and whether they can recoup some of this money. Um, but yeah, like you guys have said, I, I echo your thoughts. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens if they can't because it's a huge amount of money.
3: If I'm not mistaken, uh, Texas, the actual state invested heavily in the construction of CODIF. If that's true <laughs> and they haven't really seen the return that they were expecting, maybe they would be a lot less willing to overlook stuff like that, considering, I mean, it could just be a giant money pit for them at this point.
1: Well, there are there's historical precedent for this sort of thing, too. I mean, if you look back in history... Uh, big tracks are not too big to fail. I, I think Coda was constructed for somewhere around 100, 125 million, something like that. I mean, it was a big number. It may have been way higher than that, actually. But it was, uh, it was a huge number. But if you look back, you look at Ontario Motor Speedway, that was a clone of Indy that was built out in California. As soon as that stopped becoming profitable and the land became more valuable than the racetrack was, I mean, they tore that thing down. There's not a trace of it left.
3: I mean it's all about money and at the end of it and you know when racing doesn't become profitable for a certain area they do away with it.
0: I do want to move on here to the uh, to another race that's new on the calendar. We touched on this a little bit in the first season when it was first announced. Um but Laguna Seca will be replacing Sonoma as a season finale. Um This has been met with generally positive feedback. I know that a lot of people are happy to see it back. Uh, Last time they ran a race there was back in the champ card days, good 15-plus years ago. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see them back. They already did a test at Laguna Seca as well. uh, Not too much to hit on there because they're not really, at least as far as we know, of not in any major financial situation like uh, circuit of the Americas is, but uh, just quick round table opinions on what you guys would expect out of Laguna Seca. Do you think it's going to put on a better race for a finale uh, than Sonoma did?
3: I mean, everybody hopes it does. I mean, but we can't really say right now how it's going to go. I mean, if I remember right, there was a really high hopes for Phoenix amongst the fan base and look how that went. Yeah. But I, I honestly do have high hopes I will be attending that race, um, which I can't wait for. But I'll give my opinions on it after I see the race. <laughs> I'll,
1: I'll give you one clear distinction between Laguna Seca and uh, Phoenix. They didn't tear Laguna Seca up and change the track fundamentally and ruin it. So, uh, you know, it's virtually the same track that they left in 2004 and – in regards to the question, will it be better than Sonoma? Uh, I can think of at least one memorable race that happened at Laguna Seca, and I can't think of any that happened at Sonoma. So there's your answer.
2: I think David David knows some great points. Um, you know, I think you. you've I would just listen to some of the people so far as far as trying to judge the on-track part. And it seems like most people are understandably saying that, you know, it's going to run somewhat similar to Sonoma. I mean, of course, you know, it's both road courses. But, um, you know, I think there's, you know, from the on-track side, I mean, I'd be surprised if it's, you know, an absolute barn burner, of course. I mean, it's road course races are not, you know, exactly what we see as far as like a Fontana race a couple of years ago in the ovals. I mean, that most thrilling kind of Indy car racing tends to happen, I think on ovals, but I ha- I see no reason why it can't be a solid race. And-, and hopefully there's some, some great moments as far as off the track. It'll be interesting to see, you know, I think <clears throat> you look at a team like Andretti, I mean, they have like their winery out in Sonoma. They really like being in Sonoma, Um, It was really a perfect place to host, you know, a lot of guests at the end of the year. I think a lot of teams felt that way. But, you know, the Monterey area is also beautiful, beautiful as well. So I think off the track, you know, hopefully uh, most of the the paddock will accept it and their partners and and we'll just have to see how the attendance goes. You know, obviously the attendance wasn't that wasn't that great at Sonoma anyway. So as long as they bring out, you know, 10, 20,000, I mean, that's certainly what they were probably having at Sonoma. So hopefully if they can do any better than that, I think it'd be a wild success.
1: Adam, you made a great point, and that's something that not a lot of people understand about Sonoma. Everybody kind of said, well, it's a boring race. Why why is it the season finale? But there are major business concerns in that California area, particularly in Sonoma, like you mentioned. Just describe real quick how important uh, those kind of decisions are for IndyCar to make when they're producing a schedule it's not just about what what races will a get the most attendance and b make the most exciting tv product it's also about uh rubbing those sponsors backs
2: yeah no it's a big deal and and i think you know behind the scenes and some of this kind of crept out a little bit publicly i mean i reported on it to an extent if memory serves i'm trying to remember my own mind but i'm pretty sure some of this we reported that you know andretti you know they were the one team that was very heavy on staying on Staying in Sonoma. I mean, not to say that they're not going to em- embrace Laguna Seca, but they were definitely okay staying in Sonoma because I'm pretty sure they hosted like five, six hundred, seven hundred. I mean, they had a huge amount. It was well into the hundreds, potentially as much as five, six, seven hundred that they would host every you know IndyCar season finale out there. Again, I think Mario Andretti might have some sort of stake or his own winery out there. Um, so there, there, was definitely some. And you know, I think Team Penske as well. They they had you know a lot of great stuff going on there. Obviously. I think Sonoma might be a little bit closer to San Francisco. I could be wrong about that. Obviously, they're you know they're both kind of in that area, um, so I think that's the reason why IndyCar was ultimately able to convince them. Is you know it's still a a race in California where you should be able you know near the tech hubs where you should be able to get a lot of people to hopefully come out. It's not kind of really in the middle of nowhere. So those those things definitely play into it. Um, but in this case, I think you know IndyCar was able to convince the paddocks that really, you know, wasn't working that well at Sonoma. So why not just take a chance on going back to this classic IndyCar track that, you know, has produced some great memories over the years.
0: I know that uh, Sonoma is closer to San Francisco. It's just right across pretty much the Bay. Um, but I'd, I'd say that in terms of like Silicon Valley as a whole, you look at like the Cupertino area. Uh, I think that Laguna Seca is pretty much right around their primary, especially near Pebble Beach, all those famous landmarks. Uh, I'd be curious to see if in future seasons, if they'd be able to pull in uh, some Silicon Valley tech corporate as as a title sponsor for that race. You know, you get some executive that shows up to the race, just doesn't know much about the series maybe, but uh, likes the product he sees there, I think it's going to be profitable. I'd be curious to see if we can get some tech giant to go in there as a uh, as a sponsor in future seasons.
2: I think they, they they added the title sponsor recently, didn't they? It was one of the any was it was the Firestone? Um, I think they, yeah, you know, the, the, the I think the, it was right, right. So I think they they have those right now. But look, there's going to be a lot of companies out there, and you know, even if they, you know, you talk about hosting some of these, some of the C-suite guys uh, at in some of these big tech companies, or even mid-sized tech companies. You know, there's all sorts of. You know, not even, you don't even have to just land a major player, but just hosting those guys out there, you know, they don't have to necessarily turn to the title sponsor for for the race. I mean, they can turn to team sponsors, um, you know, things like that. So that's why certainly IndyCar wants to continue to be in that area. It's, it's, obviously, IndyCar is kind of a little bit more tech-centric of a series to an extent than maybe NASCAR, although obviously NASCAR goes to Sonoma as well and does a lot of stuff there, as well as LA. Um, so I think it's good for IndyCar to to still have a presence in that area, but it'll definitely be interesting to see what the reception is as far as whether the teams feel like they're still getting as good of a bang for their buck for their sponsors as they were in Sonoma. That's definitely something to keep an eye on, although obviously it's not for about six months, so we have a while until it happens.
0: Yeah, you brought a great great point there. I didn't even think about the team perspective there and uh, how they might gain from that if some company decides to sponsor them. Uh, Moving on, I want to talk about some of the new drivers. We have a lot of new drivers, especially for the opening race at St. Petersburg in a couple of days. Uh, Actually, when this is going up, it's probably tomorrow, if you're listening to it uh, right after it comes out. Um, Some names have just completely flown under the radar. I mean, we have, obviously, I think the two biggest ones that people have been talking about are Felix Rosenquist and Marcus Ericsson, obviously with Ericsson's Formula 1 experience with Sauber, but you have... Ben Hanley going to St. Petersburg with Dragon Speed. I mean that that entry is pretty much completely flown under the radar for me entirely. I mean uh, I haven't really heard much of the Dragon Speed stable, but it does look like they uh, they're all gunning and ready for uh, the St. Pete race. Santino Ferrucci for Dale Coyne will be there. Um, Jack Harvey with Meyer Shank. I mean you have a lot of these young guns who don't have a ton of IndyCar experience going to St. Pete. Uh, I'd be curious to see what they can do, because I know last year, I think it was the first practice session uh, when you had, uh, who was it that just got laced? Yeah, Mateus Lace got uh, first place. And then uh, Jordan King was also up there last year all weekend. I mean, he And,
1: and, and Wickens qualified on the pole.
0: Yeah, all these drivers and dumb in the race. had no experience. Uh, it was really surprising to see what they could do. So I'd be curious to see what some of these young guns can do at the St. Petersburg race this weekend.
1: The Swedish invasion, it's – you definitely have the uh, – it, it's kind of funny because we haven't had a Swede in IndyCar since Kenny Breck, and and Breck turned out pretty good. So I don't know. Uh, between the two of them, I think Rosenquest right now is kind of a guy that not as many people are looking at, obviously, because of the F1 thing with, with Ericsson. But I, it, it's hard for me to, to think about – I think Rosenquest will do better on the season – but I, I have a hard time thinking that he's going to – and I'm fully expecting to get totally wrong on this. I, I don't think he's going to do much better than Ed Jones or Tony Kanon did in that car. It just seems like the, the, the second Ganassi car almost always gets kind of shuffled to the back because they kind of throw their priority behind Scott Nixon. Um, ben Hanley's going to be interesting to see. Uh, I think he's a driver kind of in the same vein as Marcus Erickson that's getting an opportunity – and really wants to show, hey, I, you know, I'm made of the same stuff that everybody else here is made of. And um, obviously we know Santino Ferrucci, as uh, Paul Tracy once called him, Santucci. Uh, he had a lot of negative uh, energy around him last year, let's say. Uh, he's going to be a guy that's going to be – I if, if I'm him, I don't know. I don't want to speak for him. I think he's going to be looking to prove that he can keep his nose clean and – not cause controversy. We'll see, though. He may cause a 10-car pile up in turn one.
3: The thing about Santucci is that, I mean, he was basically unknown. He was... He flew really under the radar at um, Sonoma last year. And I mean, based off of the things I've heard, that he's really gained his confidence back in himself um, during the testing sessions over the wintertime. So... I'm not expecting great things out of him, but I'm expecting him to perform at a relatively respectable level. I mean, the 19 car hasn't always been the best car, but when you get a good driver in there, we've seen what they can do.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think certainly, as David said, the Swiss Invasion is, is a big one. I mean, not only on the track, but you know, off the track certainly. That kind of furthers uh, a, just another region to get, get kind of reinvigorated with. With IndyCar, um, you know, the international growth of this series seems legitimate. Now, we'll have to see if any of these TV deals that we've seen some backlash to today has any impact on that. Um, But certainly the one in Scandinavia seemed to be pretty well received at the time that they signed that uh, a couple weeks ago and it got announced. So, you know, I think off the track, that's great for IndyCar, that that you have two Swedish drivers now, obviously one from Formula One, one from Formula E, uh, now in the series. Uh, Obviously, Colton Herta. you know, what can he do? You know, at the same time, obviously, everyone's going to, kind of have in the back of their mind the fact that Patricia Award right now is not out there. Um, so, you know, Harding-Steinbrenner and, and what that kind of looks like, you know, how can they perform? Are they going to be kind of, you know, obviously O'Ward did great at Sonoma last year, so can they kind of match that? Um, or, or are they going to be kind of more in the in the back of the pack? Um, you know, I think that will be interesting to see as far as some of the rookies as well. So it seems like they got a, a pretty decent rookie class this year. Um, to your point, you know, Santino, Ferrucci, obviously I think, Negative energy was a good way to put it. Uh, You know, certainly last year was controversial for him, for sure, after that whole, you know, intentional crash deal in in F2, I think it was. So um, certainly, you know, he's someone who it seems like every time you mention him on social media, you get some people who are replying that they don't like him and and things like that. So I think – And worse. David brings up a good point. (laughs) Exactly. And worse. I think you're you're right. So he's probably going to, like you said, have to keep his nose clean this year. It's going to be a big year for him to show that he can be a professional, I think, quite frankly, which, you know, you you would hope in the perfect world he'd just be having to prove his kind of you know driving ability, but now it's more about his temper and temperament as well. So a b- big year for him, but it seems like IndyCar has an overall solid, pretty pretty solid rookie class. Um, obviously again, you know if old Ward was in there, I think that'd be a lot better for the series for for several reasons, both you know his driving skills and his potential fan base. But um, hopefully he can he can dig up a couple races and obviously at least be at Indy and maybe a couple others. So we'll we'll see what happens with that story. That was a great point, and I, I feel terrible that I
1: forgot to bring up Herda because he was lightning quick in testing. I mean, he was a, he was one and a half seconds up on the field at one point in one of the sessions in testing and considering how tight the field is these days, one and a half seconds is a massive, massive performance gap. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that translates from testing to the races. Uh, and I completely agree about Pato, hashtag justice for Pato. Uh, that, that's, a, that's one of the biggest shames in a while because, as you said, and as as my observations kind of are, I think O'Ward is a potential generational talent kind of guy. I think he's kind of in the same vein as a Zanardi or even more recently a Rossi kind of driver who really, really looks good and, and may, you know, in a couple of years after some experience – be really really good so I don't know uh, it, it's really a shame that that it went down the way it did with Harding Racing because that would have been a super team with those two young guns the
3: whole Harding Racing situation was a nightmare for them because it you know I'm not gonna say too much but they have had a lot of struggles and some of that came to light um, and not just on the racing end of things on their other end which they do they're a big asphalt paving contractor They've had a lot of issues, let's say, and some of that came to light over the Pato Award issue. And, I mean, it was kind of made even worse by... Uh, I forgot who it was on Twitter. Uh, it was Santia Rudia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and his revelation. So, they Harding Racing really needs a good... Harding Steinbrenner Racing needs a really good showing to kind of put some of this behind them. And also, Colton Hurta needs a good showing because... A lot of the, ne- well, a fair chunk of the negativity over the Pato Award situation has been blown in his way as well, you know, with a lot of people saying he shouldn't be there, it should be Pato instead of him.
0: I don't know how I forgot Herda, because like you said, David, when you looked at his performance at Coda, it was really eye-opening. No one was really expecting that much of a pace deficit between him and, you know, some of these really talented guys like Scott Dixon and... Uh, I mean, but I was, it's only testing. Yeah, it is only testing. That's the thing. I'd be curious to see where he ranks himself at St. Pete and furthermore at these other tracks, um, like Circuit of the Americas when they actually race there, Barber. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he does have a lot to prove, like you said, Kevin, as well, because a lot of these people said, oh, I saw people on Twitter, too, straight up told him, uh, Pato Award deserved this seat over you, this and that, you know.
3: The whole reason that Colton's even in that seat is because the Steinbrenners brought into bought into the team and. I mean, Steinbrenner has been a huge backer for his career.
1: Here's my assessment of the situation, especially because I think it came out in a Robin Miller article that the two team owners, being George Steinbrenner and uh, Mike Harding, split the responsibilities to find funding for their drivers. One of the owners did that, and one of the owners didn't do that. So.
3: I mean, one of the owners did it through selling popcorn and stuff at a baseball game. The other one, <laughs> the other one, not as much. <laughs> there's
0: always that you one part it of the, every me. episode. <laughs> every one episode. No, but just...
2: I think to Kevin. I think that Kevin's point, though. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about how Steinbrenner was able to get their funding together and Harding wasn't, but. You know, there's been no sponsorship unveiled for the entire team, so you got to think that really this is just coming out of George Steinbrenner's uh, uh, pocketbook, or, or excuse me, um, it's it's Hank Steinbrenner, right? Or is it Hal? Um, it's, it's Hank, I believe, right? So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Hank. It's Hank, excuse me. So, um, you know, I think it's coming out of Hank Steinbrenner's pocketbook, really, right now. Um, so, you know, uh, from from that perspective, um, you know, you can't really. It's un- certainly unfortunate to see that it's happened, but but neither side has landed sponsorship to this point. I mean the the openers this weekend, and nothing's been unveiled. So unless they're unveiling something over the next couple of days, it seems like obviously this is just coming out of Hank Steinbrenner's pocketbook to fund to fund, to, to fund Herta for the season right now. Now, obviously, you can land sponsorship throughout the season, so we'll see what happens. But as of right now, it doesn't seem like they've landed anything, unfortunately.
3: And keep in mind, the whole pace between from Harding-Steinbrenner racing at COTA, I mean, yes, there's only testing, but keep in mind their new alliances. I mean, they're at Honda now which means that they can get closer to effectively their parent team at Andretti. They got full on support on the dampers and stuff like that from Andretti. So basically it's not one of those things where they have to be secretive about their partnership. And Andretti is only about like 10 miles away. They're based about 10 miles away uh, from Harding Racing, Harding Steinbrenner Racing's base in Indianapolis. So there's a really close connection in the team. Plus keep in mind, Brian Herta. Really closely associated with Andretti Autosport
1: too. So, Kevin, let let's just say it say what it is. It, it's a fifth Andretti car.
3: Yeah, I was that's trying trying what it is. Avoid saying
1: that. But I, I was to say I'm more that. than willing to say that because that's what it is. The uh, that and that's why you're going to see the pace increase. I mean, I I the dampers that they were using last year were uh, from KV Racing uh, and they were built in 2012. So they were well well out to lunch. With, uh, with their equipment last year and as soon as they got the Andretti parts in Sonoma, suddenly you saw a massive performance uh, leap
2: I want to
0: talk about some, some TV deals too, I hinted about this earlier uh, there's two notable ones that I want to talk about uh, first one is their TV deal in Canada which was just announced today, by the way there's an, uh, there's an article on IndyCar.com for pretty much all the international uh, broadcasters if you want to check that out because we're not going to cover all of them Uh, Because I think there's something like they're reaching 70, approximately 100 nations. So, I mean, that would take probably about two hours, and I'm not going (laughs) to do that. But I want to touch on Canada and the United Kingdom, because those seem to be the two big ones. Canada, obviously, because, first of all, they have an IndyCar race. And second off, they're probably the second biggest uh, presence for IndyCar racing, because they're in North America. Um, So, Canada, the races... We'll be continuing on Sportsnet. Sports, so I guess it's going on between three channels. I'm just trying to figure this out on the spot here. Sorry, but uh, Sportsnet World, Sportsnet 360, and Sportsnet 1. Um, Adam, I don't know if you'd be able to touch on that a little bit more. I know you seem to have sort of an insider knowledge on uh, these TV packages. I know this one was just announced today, but if you have anything specifically that you'd like to add on that, feel free.
2: Yeah, you know, I think it it seems like, unfortunately for IndyCar, they might have just lost a little bit of leverage with Sportsnet. I mean, obviously, you know, in an ideal world, you wouldn't have the races only on an OTT network or on a linear package, but it's an extra linear package. So basically, it's kind of like, you know, an extra cable channel that you have to buy additionally on top of your usual cable. So it seems like, from what I can understand, that those are the two places it's appearing for fans in Canada. It's either... You got to buy the streaming package from Sportsnet, or you have to have uh, sort of cable, but in a, now you're going to have to buy an additional channel. So, I mean, look, obviously that's not ideal if you're a fan. Um, I, you know, I think, I you know, we know how fans are, and, and we're all fans in certain regards of something, right? So, everyone obviously would rather have something for free than pay for it. I mean, that's just if I offered you a free dinner or a dinner you had to pay for, and they were the same thing, you'd take the free one. So, obviously we've we've seen this with Supercross. Um, you know, I think Monster Energy Supercross fans were very, uh, uh, you know, they put a pretty big big response up when they realized that they were going behind the paywall with NBC Sports Gold. Um, you know, we didn't see quite as bad of a response, I think, with or, or as negative a response from IndyCar fans, in part po- possibly because the package for IndyCar was cheaper. Uh, the package for, for IndyCar with NBC was $50 and for Supercross it was 75 um, and they also have some slightly different kind of, um, uh, features of them, but, you know, so I think for, for Canadian fans, I mean, we've seen the response today, you know, obviously social media can be a little bit of an echo chamber, so, you know, you can't just take what you're seeing on social media and say, that's absolutely a 100% of the population's response, but clearly it's, it's a place where it's really worth taking the temperature and, and you saw the responses today were unfortunately for IndyCar, not that positive. So um, certainly concerning. I mean, it's a major, major place as far as fan base for, for IndyCar. you know, outside of the US, I would have to think that Canada's in the top five, um, maybe top three. So m- maybe, you know, right after the U S with the biggest fan base potentially. So, um, it, I think it's something that they're definitely going to be keeping an eye on, you know, is there any way to rectify it? I'm not sure. Um, you know, we'll just have to see what happens, but it looks like for one reason or the other. They just didn't have the leverage to get this on to some better TV channels. And, you know, is it going to do damage? I mean, we'll have to see as far as the, the fan base. But I think if you're IndyCar and you're seeing the, the percentage of negative to neutral comments with almost no positive comments today, uh, I'd be surprised if any of them would, you know, be on- could honestly tell you they're not concerned. Adam, there's an important business point
1: in in the TV deals ver- uh, that are being negotiated this year versus negotiated last year. Last year and all years previous, to my knowledge, IndyCar went to a third party to negotiate their deals. Now IndyCar is directly negotiating their own TV contracts. What kind, Obviously, we've seen – their effectiveness negotiating those contracts. But what kind of an impact does this have on IndyCar and its bottom line to have that cash flow coming directly to them rather than kind of through a middleman?
2: Well, you know, I think talking to Mark Miles and then also talking to Steven Starks, who kind of runs up the promoter relations and also now media for IndyCar, you know, it almost seemed like they were doing this, I think, in the long run. They think this can make them more money, but it seemed like really they were doing it because they felt that, you know, that third party was ESPN International. Um, That's who they previously licensed the rights to. So obviously they licensed the rights to ESPN International and got a certain amount in return. And you you would think that they got a certain amount of return that was, you know, what they figured was a fair price. So theoretically, they may not necessarily be getting a ton more money right off the break. I think what they thought was, you know, we, nobody knows our product better than us. So why are we going to have someone out there selling it for us? Particularly if if they felt like ESPN International was not all in, and ESPN was not all in, and obviously ABC and ESPN lost IndyCar rights. So, you know, I don't know their exact thinking on that, but but I, I you know obviously with ABC and ESPN kind of having to check out of of IndyCar because they lost the rights to NBC, theoretically they're not going to be more all in on the sport. So I think IndyCar just felt like nobody knows our sport better than us. We can sell these rights directly. And in the long run, by deepening the engagement with these broadcasters along around the world, as they add programming about IndyCar and we, we, they get to know us better. So we, you know, they do more coverage because we're kind of showing them the sport more, et cetera, that can lead to more long-term revenue because you're going to grow more fans. Um, so I think that's why they did it. But look, I mean, again, you look at the Canada result and, You know, so far it's not so good, I don't think. So we'll just have to see. You know, again, was social media just a little bit of an echo chamber today? And, you know, a lot of fans end up being okay with this? Or or was this real, you know, was the temperature we saw on social media, you know, what's going to play out across the board? And it's going to turn into a very perilous situation for IndyCar as far as a major part of their fan base outside of the U.S. So the proof will be in the pudding. We'll just have to see. But again, I think any IndyCar executive would tell you they'd probably be concerned. And, um, you know, that that doesn't necessarily mean that it was a mistake for them to take the, the deal in-house. Um, You know, I don't know the exact details of the negotiations with Sportsnet. It might have just been that, you know, there's a new executive at Sportsnet who wasn't feeling IndyCar and felt like it wasn't worthy of some of their better programming. Maybe, you know, there was just too much programming that was already tied up to other properties. So I, I don't know the 100% story there, but, uh, you know, I, I think in the long run, they, they hope it'll make them more money to have the rights in-house, but It'll be interesting to see kind of if they run into more situations like this. Well, one last thing I'll say is they hired the executive from ESPN, and they hired an executive from ESPN International who was uh, helping oversee this previously. So theoretically, they didn't lose any human capital, uh, you know, knowing these deals and knowing these broadcasters. So you know, it's interesting to see that you know that this is the deal they were able to come up with. But you know, without knowing further details of exactly why they weren't able to get, perhaps. A slightly better deal from the fans perspective i'll have to hold off until i can get more details there
0: i do want to quickly throw in here and i want to correct myself um earlier i did say that they'd be broadcasting across three channels in canada that is correct but they're also primarily it seems like uh, adam you hinted on this it seems like primarily they want to switch towards a uh, streaming prominent platform through sportsnet now plus Uh, similar, it it seems, to what NBC Sports Gold is here in the United States. And like you said, both don't really seem to be met with that positive feedback. I know that a lot of uh, consumers say, all right, well, I'm already paying for cable. All the races are going to be on cable, so why should I have to pay an extra $50 a year here in the U.S. to watch practice and qualifying? Uh, You know. We're getting a better product when we watch these practice streams because last year it was IMS commentary on top of some YouTube camera angles that we're cycling. Uh, this year it's going to be a proper NBC-produced feed uh, with commentators like Lee Diffie, Paul Tracy, Townsend Bell. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these people don't really care about that. They care about saving money. Uh, and at the end of the day, it seems like IndyCar, they're doing something of that's really experimental. I don't think I've seen that many series. Apart from F1, they seem to be getting into the streaming market heavily with Liberty. Um, but I haven't really seen any other series try to jump into this streaming prominent market as quick as IndyCar has.
2: Well, in, in, you know, in the U S obviously they've still got the linear relationship with NBC sports. Um, you know, that, that they're going to have all the races that are going to be, you know, kind of the gold packages really seems like for qualifying and practice, you know? And, and so, um, you know, obviously Supercross has their package as well. Um, you know, they have some races that are going to be all, some of their races are, all their races are live on the gold package, but, some of them on TV are delayed. So, you know, Supercross has certainly kind of taken that dive as well and also seen a little bit of a backlash from it. it. It's interesting, you know, from a broad perspective, like here at Sports Business Journal, you know, we're covering OTT in a big way. And it's not just motorsports. Let me say, you know, DC United and MLS, they went behind an OTT paywall this past offseason, and they they saw a huge backlash, you know. So, so that's just – so that's soccer fans. So I think we're it, it's a very fascinating time because we're kind of seeing these media landscapes and platforms kind of really start to shift before our eyes and, and, you know, there's been a lot, lot of talk about OTTs, the future. And that that talk went on in 2016 and 2017, 2018, here we are in 2019 and some of the properties are starting to actually take that dive in. So definitely something to keep an eye on, you know, IndyCar also formed this relationship with, with the zone, which is a really kind of big growing global platform that's now headed up by the former president of ESPN, John Skipper. So um, that's going to be for, I think like Italy brazil switzerland and germany are going to be the areas that get that um they also have a relationship with moto gp so yeah it's definitely some interesting deals and look you know again we'll just have to see you know maybe this will work out in the end in canada one way or the other but i mean obviously you know you could just read the social media responses today and tell it was a little bit of a tough response for sure
0: on a slightly more positive note though i said this i want to talk about the united kingdom because they're actually switching their rights over uh from bt sport to sky sports f1 i think from a series perspective, in trying to gather more fans, especially in a season where they have Fernando Alonso, a extremely prominent Formula One or former Formula One driver, racing the Indy 500 again, um, for them to have all of the races on a channel that most Formula One fans would already have to watch those races, I think that. If you're trying to expand the series to these fans, uh, that's just probably. And David, you made a whole video about this as well. That's probably the best move they could have made, uh, because all these fans who are already paying for Sky Sports F1, they're already going to have access to these IndyCar races. I, I
1: said it's as big as CART on Eurosport back in the 90s. I mean, it's it's big, and I know some people in the United Kingdom. I saw them in my comments were. We're upset that Formula One itself is going behind a paywall, so to speak, going onto a paid channel rather than uh, having a, 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 a having it being available on a free channel. But to be honest with you, again, Sky Sports F1 being the place you can go and get Formula One racing and now also the place you can go and get IndyCar racing, uh, not only does it add value to that channel for people who may have been on the fence whether or not to buy it just for F1 – but the people who already bought it for F1 now are going to get more value out of that and probably I would guess you know they'll watch the F1 race I guess in the afternoon for them and then in the evening watch the IndyCar race
0: yeah I think that's it's major news for opening doors to a lot of new fans I already said that I think that in terms of a series perspective from IndyCar I think that they couldn't have really gone better with that
2: yeah, you know, I, I don't I don't have any financial figures uh, as far as what they're getting for these deals right now. I mean, we can try and dive into that and see what we can dig up. Um, but, you know, as David was saying, I think it's definitely a good move. I mean, my understanding from, you know, checking out some, some uh, bloggers who, who cover F1 media, things like that, was that BT Sport was not doing the best job of promoting IndyCar. So obviously it was already on TV in England, but apparently there was suffering from a serious lack of promotion. I think... Uh, And there's a it's a blog called, I think, F1 Broadcasting. And I think they had the stat that IndyCar races were averaging around 20,000 viewers um, per race, which obviously, you know, it's in Britain. So it's not like that's the U.S., but that's still not a huge amount of people. So, you know, I think definitely moving to. Yeah, look, I mean, in a perfect world, I guess would probably move to the major Sky Sports channel that is on still free to air TV. But, um, the, you know, obviously this F1 channel they have seems to be getting pretty well established. It's, it seems like a channel that a lot of people have. And I, and I think, look, similar to how you read the T leaves and you read the comments from the Canada deal, and unfortunately for any car, those were going in the bad direction. I mean, I think clearly the response you saw on social media for England and Sky Sports F1 indicated the opposite. I mean, it seemed like most people were happy with this. There were some people in the comments who were saying, oh, it's not free to air, you know, so it's this extra cable channel. Um, but it seemed like it was a really good response. So, you know, again, the, I think obviously you have to be careful about saying, okay, I saw this on social media and that means it's definitely the case of around a hundred percent of people. Um, but definitely it seemed like there was a good response there. And I think that indicates that a lot of people had this channel. Obviously we're not located in England, so we don't know the percentage of things like that, but it seems like a good amount of motorsports fans in England had this channel. So, you know, I know obviously F1 races there get, I think, Certainly, well into the six figures, if not the seven figures, per race in Britain in terms of amount of viewers. Um, So, certainly, you know, twenty thousand. If IndyCar can grow that by two, three, four, five times that under Sky Sports F1 this year, uh, that'd be a big win. And again, it just it just keeps showing that you know it started with Fernando Alonso in the Indy 500, 2017. Um, You know, the series is doing well in the U.S., but it is really taking off internationally.
3: I was gonna say the real the real thing for Sky Sports, for the uh, British fans, they're going to be the one-stop shop um, for really the Super Sunday, I guess you could call it, with uh, the Monaco Grand Prix and the Indy 500 both being on the same channel on the same day. Pretty much back-to-back, you know. That's going to be fantastic for them. And, I mean, you know, it's great to have two of the biggest races in the world on the same channel
1: on the same day. And consider that in UK time, the Indy 500 is going to be taking place in prime Prime time. time. So, I mean, you gotta think that the ratings are gonna be massive for that race.
0: Yeah, and the coverage is gonna start right after Monaco Post race is over, so you're just gonna have probably an insane amount of carryover people.
1: Yeah, everybody who fell asleep during Monaco will just sleep (laughs) right through the Indy 500. I mean,
3: you know, there's a lot of people that love Fernando, there's a lot of people that don't necessarily like him. Um, But, you can actually give him a lot of credit for this blossoming uh, this blossoming period that IndyCar has had. It got the eyes on it and IndyCar has taken and knocked it out of the park in the last especially last season with their product. I mean they've improved it. they've gotten cars that are significantly better aesthetically and performance wise. And you know last year was very critical for IndyCar and this year maybe even more so.
2: I'm not sure if it's always been this way, um, but it seems like there's a, a lot of F1 fans right now who are kind of trying to turn to an alternative product. And, and, you know, obviously F1, similar to NASCAR in many ways, I mean, it's amazing how many different parallels there are between the way Formula 1 and NASCAR are both trying to remake themselves heading into 2021. But, you know, it seems like Formula 1 and how they're racing right now, of course, there's just not a ton of overtaking. You have these same, you know, pretty much three dominant teams, really two, um, they're always winning the races. So it seems like there's more kind of F1 fans than ever. Uh, I'd be interested to hear some of your guys' perspective on this, but it seems like from my perspective, there's more F1 fans than ever that are looking at IndyCar as like, okay, they, they actually have competition there. Obviously, you know, Fernando Alonso kind of starting to say that in the, in the F1 press and that getting out there maybe furthered that. So it, it's really a great time for IndyCar to try and seize on some of that and, and maybe take some of that global market share of open-wheel fans.
1: Well, I have two observations about that. Um, from what I've seen on social media, and again, like you said, you can't totally gauge every uh, reaction as truth, but I see a lot of Formula One fans who will come into comment sections about IndyCar racing and will say how much better the racing is than, the, than X Grand Prix, whichever, which, whichever one happened more recently. And I will also say to your point about NASCAR and, and uh, F1 trying to reboot themselves – well, IndyCar is kind of ahead of the curve on that one because in a lot of ways the Universal Aero kit was a, a back-to-the-future kind of a thing. Was it the most forward-thinking move they could have possibly made? No, but it was a crowd-pleasing one. And I think in this era of motorsports where uh, not only are new fans at such a premium, you almost have to cater to the old fans just to keep them around. So I think... To your point, I think we're going to see F1 and NASCAR kind of start to go further backwards and kind of take some of the elements that people miss and liked quite a bit of the past and bring them forward, uh, kind of like IndyCar has done with their current product. And we're seeing that the fans have reacted more positively and some of the new fans kind of coming in. Uh, will say, oh, this is missing from NASCAR or that's missing from F1. I'm glad IndyCar is doing that. So I think that's what we're going to see.
3: I have a couple points as well. I mean, if you look at F and there's three series that have really common denominators and they are both have been on the decline. And those three series are F1, NASCAR and WEC. And the common denominator is, they have a problem and when they have a problem they always have a knee-jerk reaction they don't always see things through necessarily well they don't have the best solution well indycar they saw that they had a cost issue they made a very deliberate move they extended they kept the arrow kit era going through its extent through its anticipated original run they halted development on it it's like okay we're gonna have a new car it's going to you know be easier on the pocketbook and it's going to be more enticing to small teams And when they unveiled it, it actually, you know, they actually gave it time. They gave it proper testing. They, you know, they did everything they needed to to show that, yes, this car works. It's completely different design, but it's the same chassis that we had. You just got to alter it a little bit. You know, it's not these crazy knee-jerk reactions that we've seen from NASCAR, WEC, and F1. And my other point is that f1 to the hardcore fan will always be number one i mean to the people that get really deep into the tech stuff that notice every little minuscule change of the car every single race you know it's going to be hard to win them over but for the casual fan indycar is easier to understand because you know we're not talking about these super mega hybrid systems we're not talking about all these little winglets and s ducks and stuff like that it's just a basic product compared to f1 and Simplicity is a great thing.
0: I think more to your point, David, is that uh, F1 fans, there's two sides of them. There's really some that are just like, no, I'm just going to watch F1. Kevin, you said this too. I'm just going to watch F1. Uh, but I've also seen a ton of people who have sort of just crossed the pond. I say, you know what? I never thought of would be an IndyCar fan watching these guys do laps around Iowa. <laughs> but they actually turn out to enjoy that now.
1: That's one thing that's been lost, real quick. That's one thing that's been lost in the in the TV deals and the NBC Gold thing. The free streaming on YouTube is a bigger loss than I think IndyCar is willing to admit. And maybe they realized they were going to lose that by taking the money. But um, the fact that their product is no longer free to the majority of the world is, is definitely going to hurt them down the line. But go on.
0: Yeah, you're correct on that. Uh, But I also wanted to add in that I think that the Indy 500 this year is probably going to be In terms of international presence, the most important Indy 500 that's probably ever existed. Uh, We already talked about that Monaco lead and and the fact that it's on the same channel. I think that the Indy 500 is going to be really important. If they can get a really solid performance out of that race, uh, gather some eyes. Also, you have to drag those same people over and have a good race for the doubleheader Detroit. I know you'd kind of like... uh, Maybe be skeptical about that, David, given I'm previous groaning years. already. But
1: it'd be, it'd be a much better race if it was at Milwaukee or well, Michigan. Well, see, here's the thing is you can,
0: you can gather the eyes of these European fans and know that a lot of them just hate watching oval racing, and that's fine. But when they go to that road course the week after, it has to put on a good performance, I'd say, if you want to try to keep as many fans as possible because that's the one race they're going to be looking at after Indianapolis. And if it doesn't really put on a great show, I'd expect that that's where they're going to lose quite a few of those fans. All right. I ref. do think you should watch
2: out for the potential of McLaren coming to uh, IndyCar next year full time. That's, that's got some very, very, you know, legitimate buzz and legs, I think. Um, you know, we kind of had that thought last year that, they, you know, we knew they were looking at for 2019. You know, we were able to first kind of get that out there last year in part because McLaren had people on the ground um, trying to find sponsorship. And, and you know, we kind of heard about that. And so that's how that all kind of got out there. And, you know, this year, obviously, they've now hired a, a team president. You know, they've already announced a little bit more uh, sponsorship. They've got more rolling out over the next, you know, I know they've got another deal coming out tomorrow, uh, Thursday. So, um, you know, I think watching out for, for the potential of them joining in 2020 full-time is, is definitely something you should keep an eye on this season.
3: So since McLaren's having a sponsor announcement, I guess, tomorrow, what, David, what time can we expect your video?
1: Uh, depends if it's Coca-Cola or not. If it's if it's Coke, I'm absolutely making a video. If it's uh oh, actually, you know what, the better one would be the freaking cigarette company. Uh, oh, a better if it's, tomorrow. If yeah, if it's, <laughs> uh, if, it's a, if it's a better tomorrow, I'm absolutely making a video. Oh, it'll be God. a lot of fun. But uh, so if it's if it's sugar or if it's smokes, yes. If it's a uh, if it's a website with 200 uh, Twitter followers, probably not.
3: You mean, like, Group 1001 and their whole, like, seven Instagram followers?
1: <laughs> well, I was talking about, what was that one, Squarespace? I'm trying to look at that United Autosports uh, uh, model that it's has... ScanSource. ScanSource, yeah, which has, like, 200 Twitter followers.
0: <laughs> I have money. no idea how, how Group 1001 has this money. I've told Kyle this before, but they're now Gainbridge is the presenting sponsor for the Indy 500. Where do they pull they this money? 54- <laughs>
3: They have 54 followers on Instagram and they're
0: Adam,
1: sponsoring the flipping.
3: You
0: want to,
2: you want to take this one or plead the fifth? Yeah, no, I mean, they're an insurance firm. So, you know, these are the sort of companies that they're B2B companies largely, you know, obviously this GameBridge uh, uh brand is somewhat consumer facing technically speaking, but it's, it's obviously kind of targeted towards, you know, people who are probably looking for financial services. It's not, it's, it's not like McDonald's, you know, it's not what, it's not a, a consumer packaged good or something like that. But, you know, insurance firms that we've never heard of can have billions of dollars in assets. So, um, you know, I think the the B2B side of motorsports, and this is partially on people like me to do a better job, but it gets undertold at times. Um, p- certainly everyone understands it, but it's such a big part. And, um, you know, I think that's why Group 1001 originally came in to look to sign, you know, some B2B deals with whether it's fellow sponsors or, you know, stakeholders in the sport, like teams and leagues, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, they, they got this, they had this new brand launching and I guess, you know, IndyCar, you know, having already known them through, uh, you know, they, um, group One Thousand One is a sponsor for the LPGA event at the, uh, IMS golf course. And also obviously they're with Zach Beach and Andretti. So, um, they brought them the opportunity and I guess they had the money. So, you know, obviously I think in a perfect world, um, IMS would have ended up with a more well-known brand uh I think that that I'm comfortable saying that but at the same time you know it sounds like from what I understand they're paying more money than what um uh Penn Grade was which I think was around like 1.2 million annually for this uh so it's a it's a significant amount of money and you know at the end of the day that's that's big you know so I think obviously to your guys's point you know the the you know it, it's possible that that GameBridge will get more out of this than IMS will potentially because, you know, IMS and Indy 500 is already a well-known, you know, worldwide brand and GameBridge is really just completely brand new. So, you know, is it the strongest move for IndyCar from a promotional perspective and having a, you know, another brand promote your brand? Uh, Probably not, but it sounds like they wrote a decent check. And again, I mean, it's an insurance firm. So, These are the sort of companies that can make it do a lot of business behind the scenes. And then you and I will never know about it because it's not a company that really makes the news.
1: Well, that's that's to your point, something and I don't have the business background, but but at the same time, I've tried to explain it to people in the past. You mentioned business to business deals and and just how important they are to modern racing business and how it's done. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, the sponsorships that you see on race cars are not based on selling to the folks in the audience or uh, in the sta- uh, in the stands or uh, on TV. They're, the sponsors are there because they want to uh, cater to some of their very high-ranking shareholders and customers who buy lots and lots of their products or invest lots and lots of money In their uh, company to bring them into the suite, bring them into the garage, feed them caviar uh, and maybe maybe watch four or five laps of the race and say, oh, we're on an Indy car. How cool is this? Here's an Instagram photo. I mean, that's a little bit cynical, but in a lot of ways that that's a lot of what modern sponsorship is versus. Direct to consumer, you know, kind of the '90s NASCAR thing of, you know, McDonald's is here and Burger King is here and Amico is here and 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 all these companies that you recognize and can go shop at at, McDo- at uh, Walmart are, are in the series. It's much more, you know, business oriented and and more of just uh, trying those businesses trying to get their investors and their their higher dollar people more uh, warm to their company, I suppose.
2: It's that, and it's also, you know, it's certainly hospitality with current customers and prospective customers. It's also trying to find customers through the sport. So, um, you know, one example is, unfortunately I haven't been able to get this on the record to be able to identify the companies involved yet, but I can just speak loosely that um, a bank in motorsports was recently able to get a major media company to become one of its clients. So, like the major media companies now banking through this bank and they've struck the deal through Motorsports. Um, basically, what through that, what I mean is the executives who struck the deal like met at a race and things kind of grew from there. So, that's another big part of it. And I think in a perfect world, some of these, as long as they're a company that, you know, does both, I mean, there's, you know, a, like a bank, for example, does B2B work and B2C work. You know, some of them do have consumer relations. So, in a perfect world, you get a company that does both, but you're right, David. There are times where they're just focused on the behind-the-scenes, and that's why the, you know some people were interested in NTT. I mean, they're a little bit more of a B2B company in many regards, but they do things that touch the consumers, and they do kind of work on technology that ultimately ends up impacting consumers, so that hopefully can still be a great deal for the, for the sport, but no question, B2B is kind of the coin of the realm right now.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up, is that IndyCar as a whole seems to be switching from this sort of B2C format where they have Verizon, which, you know, they did some business-to-business, through their enterprise work, but, you know, that's largely a business-to-consumer company. And NTT is something that a lot of people wouldn't know the name from because it's mainly a business-to-business company. And you look at uh, GameBridge, like you said, for the Indy 500 uh, replacing Pengrade, Grade, it seems to be the direction that IndyCar... I'm not sure if they want to head this way, if this is all intentional, if this is just where the money is, but uh, but it seems to be the direction that they're heading.
2: I, I remember Mark Miles said um, when he was kind of hinting at who the title sponsor was going to be, which obviously you know, eventually was revealed as NTT. That right now IndyCar is stronger in the B2B realm, but they're hoping to grow and become stronger in the B2C realm. Um, and and you know I, I know that there was kind of some behind the scenes from people in the industry I spoke to. There was kind of a little bit of pushback about that notion i mean there's some people who strongly believe that the sport can be and also needs to be a place for consumer brands um because you need those companies to you know not just excite fans but also help market your sport uh you know people talk about in the heydays of nascar you couldn't go into a town where nascar was and not immediately see tons of brands activating not just at the racetrack but literally all throughout the city and and there's still a lot of people in nascar who talk about this is the reason why we're not as big anymore we lost part of this so um, you know, I, I know that people in IndyCar feel strongly that it needs to continue to be a, a platform that is not just only for B2B companies. So, um, it, it's definitely part of motorsports right now. It's a big part of sponsorship and it's, it's a good thing. It's not necessarily something where it's, it should be a dirty, you know, thing here. Like B2B is not a bad thing at all. Other sports are trying to catch up to motorsports in certain regards in terms of how good, co- you know, motorsports entities have become at helping, you know a company, whether it's with hospitality, like David said, of current customers and trying to grow that business or introducing companies to do business together, which is, you know, really valuable when that happens. Um, so it's definitely not a bad thing at all that that there's a lot of B2B going on. It's a strong thing. But at the same time, you can't only rely on that because you need consumer brands, um, not just to market your sport, but also I think fans enjoy seeing, you know, cool brands that, that they know uh, in the sport. And I can tell you, I've also spoken to someone from, uh, <laughs> one of the more recognizable sponsors of motorsports in the U S over the past couple of decades. Um, and, and they said that the CEO, I think of their company used to come to races and look at other cars and, and they wanted to see like, Hey, look, we're a blue chip brand. We want to see other blue chip brands out here as well. Cause otherwise like, what are we doing here? Why aren't there, why aren't some of our competitors here? So it's important for the sport to continue to have strong consumer brands and Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, GameBridge technically is a consumer brand to an extent, but it's it's not very well known. So, again, I mean, I'm not saying that's not going to be a good deal for the sport, but the sport certainly needs to continue to fill out its sponsor roster and bring some more, you know, big promotional consumer companies into the sport.
1: Speaking to that point and speaking to Chris's point as well about the shift from B to C, and this is going back a couple of years, but I think it's relevant, how major – in terms of IndyCar switch from B2B to B2C, or uh, excuse me, from the opposite, from B2C to uh, B2B, how crucial was the loss of Target? Because I remember hearing at the time that many companies that were involved with IndyCar uh, started to get quite worried, or at least the teams did, when Target left. W- was that kind of a tipping point, or was that just kind of the... Uh, just a kind of a culmination of, of the, the shift in sponsorship dollars.
2: You know, I, I'm not so sure that we've, you know, that, that target leaving in and of itself led to other brands leaving. I think, I still think, you know, first of all, I mean, obviously they have probably been the biggest defection in IndyCar since then. I don't think they've probably been the biggest brand to leave IndyCar since, you know, th- whoever was the biggest before them has, you know, there's not been another bigger brand since then. Um, but, I I think obviously every decision comes down to the company themselves. I mean, you look at like Lowe's, for example, in NASCAR. I mean, they had new executive leadership who just, they weren't as into NASCAR, not necessarily in terms of just fandom, but, you know, both probably fandom personally. And then also for whatever reason, they felt like it was time to try something new. Obviously they now have a deal with the NFL. Um, So, you know, I'm not so sure that that target leaving in and of itself has like what led anyone else to exit but certainly again going back to what i was saying a minute ago there's no doubt that brands pay attention to the news they pay attention to what other companies in the sport are doing and that's why nascar for example is working so desperately to try and reverse this narrative of of negativity and and declines that they're facing and that you know somewhat besieged some of their fan base's mindsets and some of the media's mindset somewhat understandably to an extent of course um so, you know, again, I think, obviously, you know, anytime you see a company like Target saying, hey, look, we don't even want to stick around for five races. Like, we are just taking our money. We are taking our ball and going home. Yeah, other brands pay attention to that. And it makes, you know, the teams or, or properties or tracks that they're aligned with have to work o- overtime to say, hey, look, remember, we're still delivering you this value here, 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 in these buckets, blah, blah, blah. Maybe, okay, we'll cut your price. You don't have to pay us as much. So it definitely has an impact. But in and of itself, I, I'm not sure that Target leaving has said, you know, led to one other company leaving just because of that.
1: Okay, I know this is the IndyCar preview, and Chris is probably going to get mad at me for asking this question, but you brought it up. (laughs) NASCAR and their narrative control, you just mentioned it, you just brought it up. Do you think they, uh, uh, this may be a bit of a loaded term, so I apologize if it is, do you believe that they are gaslighting their fans, and do you believe that the way they've tried to control their narrative is hurting them more long term than it would be if they just came out and said, look, fans, you know, you're right about X, Y, and Z, but you're going a little too far about A, B, and C. Do you do you think they're handling the situation wrong? Because I certainly believe they are.
2: Well, I think we, you know, potentially that I think that's been the case to an extent, depending on, you know, the particular scenario, but I think we've somewhat started to see that shift recently um, with some of the new leadership. You know, you you had the whole kind of big example of Steve Phelps, the president, coming out um, to the Daytona Beach News Journal and saying, you know, we lost our way. Um, you know, which I think a lot of people took as like, wow, like NASCAR actually was admitting something that they did wrong in a, in a major way that they didn't in the past. So I think you start to see that change a little bit. You know, I think like you saw after the race at Las Vegas, you know, Steve O'Donnell was pretty contrite. He wasn't out there really trying to spin. He was like, look, the second and third stages were better, which. I would agree they were, but overall it wasn't the most amazing race that like we were hoping for. We need to do more work. So I think hopefully NASCAR is probably trying to get a little bit more, you know, Frank and candid. Um, because yeah, I I think to your point, you know, trying to lead folks astray, uh, you know, people are going to be able to see through that either quickly or, or eventually. So, um, I think there's definitely been part of that, David, for sure. in NASCAR over the years, um, but, you know, you got new leadership now with Jim France and Steve Phelps, and it seems like you're taking a more candid and frank approach. So, um, you know, hopefully for the fans' sake and for the sports' sake, that, that can continue.
0: All right. I think uh, I want to wrap up this episode with just a couple of questions. We already hit on a lot of these um, throughout the entire episode, so I'm just going to ask a couple that we didn't get to hit on. Uh, sorry to cut our discussion about uh, about deals short. But the first question here is, and Adam, I'm pretty much just shooting all these towards you because I have no idea. I'm assuming Kevin and David don't have an idea as to the answer <laughs> to these either. But uh, first question here is how much, or how does the sanctioning fee IndyCar asks for from potential international events compare to those of the domestic events that they have?
2: Oh boy, I wish I could dig up those figures right now. I think if memory serves, uh, certainly international is more expensive. Um, you know, IndyCar, I believe if memory serves, looks for like to double the amount maybe even more um i think the the sanction fees are usually somewhere in that kind of mid to high six figure or certainly very low seven figure range you know 1.1 1.2 at most just depends on the race but certainly it's somewhere in that range for domestic races and i think if memory serves for international races they look for closer to like two to three million um so you know they're they're coming up on that decision right now with Gold Coast for example mark miles told me uh, a couple of days ago that that decision is coming shortly. So yeah, they they look for a little bit more money internationally
0: Yeah, I was gonna bring up Gold Coast because it's obviously pretty much the biggest name we're hearing with international news right now Good um, thing.
1: They screwed up the Australian <laughs> TV deal <laughs> Still I mean
3: for the international uh, Venues, it's still you know two million dollars still looks better than the f1 fees. I mean by a oh, lot.
1: yeah, no question <laughs> You have the advantage on the Gold Coast, too, of having uh, history and having something to go off of and say, hey, look, your dad went to this race. Your granddad went to this race. That's an advantage that IndyCar really doesn't have in a whole lot of places.
0: Well, especially if you could group that race in with the Supercars Gold Coast 600. But I don't know how likely that would be considering. Well, I, I guess they'd have to be run pretty close in proximity because they already have those streets shut down. But I know Supercars nowadays runs a much shorter layout than IndyCar used to.
1: Well, they actually they actually tore up some of the old circuit. I don't even think it can be used anymore. I think they built uh, hotels on on some of it. Ah, okay.
0: Um, moving on to the next question here. There's only one more after this, but um, brings up the potential uh, rumors that they've been considering uh, a NASCAR and IndyCar hybrid weekend at a track like Chicagoland. He also wondered that if an IndyCar race was to return to Richmond, if we could see a similar situation with that now. I I have to assume that this is all speculation because obviously nothing is set in stone. We don't know if IndyCar is going back to Chicagoland or Richmond. Uh, But I think it's certainly unique to look at uh, this potential for sort of a NASCAR-IndyCar hybrid weekend because uh, the two fan bases, from what I've seen in the past, uh, sometimes they get together. I'd say more than not, they don't really get together. So I think it would be kind of interesting to see... um, what they think of each other's sort of side of the pond, obviously a completely different style of racing. One has high down force, one is, well, I'm going to say one has low down force, but with that massive spoiler they put on there now, I don't know how much I could say that. Um, But I'd be curious to see what could come out of a a situation like that where where you do have IndyCar and NASCAR cross weekends.
2: Yeah, I can touch on that. Um, You know, I can say for a fact, because I was able to confirm it with, with the people involved that certainly Chicagoland was discussed last year. Now, it was very initial, um, preliminary, I think, if memory serves, IndyCar suggested it initially. Um, but it wasn't something that really advanced to anything that was really close to happening. But at the same time, I think there's there's you know, a receptiveness on both ends in, in terms of NASCAR and IndyCar. Um, I know for a fact IndyCar is still open to it. Um, and I, I think you know, under the proper circumstances, NASCAR would be potentially willing to give it a try. Um, you know, might be more of a ISC track than an SMI track where we see it, um, at least at first. But yeah, I, I don't think you know. I, I haven't really checked much back into it ever since that you know we reported about Chicago a couple months ago. You know, we'll we'll kind of as obviously some of these schedule developments start to play out in the following year and, and getting ready for the following year's release. You know, we'll hopefully get some more details there, but. I definitely think it seems like, you know, it's way too early to say it's definitely going to happen, but it seems like there's a, an openness there that, that might not have been there before. Um, you know, it seems like maybe IndyCar was open to it in the past, but certainly it seemed like NASCAR was, was not open to it, and it seems like that's changing. You know, NASCAR obviously is is having to try and stem some of these declines, and they're having to try different things, and obviously I think it makes a lot of sense to try and take a rising tide list all boats approach, and you know, as far as motorsports, and one of the ways you could do that is these double headers. So, so definitely something to keep an eye on.
1: Well, they they would sell a lot of tickets, and I think that's well, yeah. the one thing that everybody's looking at is that they probably sell that thing out if they now they'd have to price it right. If they priced it like Super Sebring, where it's a hundred bucks for two races, you know, then then you know all in, you know. But yeah. I I would worry NASCAR or IndyCar would get too egocentric about it and be like oh, we, we can't lower our ticket prices. You know, the other races, you know, charging X, Y, and Z for it. And, you know, I, I, that's what I would worry about in that situation, too high at ticket prices. They price everybody out of it and then they ruin what would be a really unique and interesting event.
2: Yeah. My understanding was that IndyCar was open to running on uh, the days before. So, you know, there was an understanding that, you know, NASCAR would be on the Sunday and IndyCar would either be on like Friday or Saturday. Um, but you know, to your point, Dave, about the ticket prices, is that, that could be a, a good point. So we'll just have to see what happens. But um, you know, I think you if you try and take approach of why not try as we're all trying to grow, um, you might see this being a potential thing to, to give it a whirl. All
0: right. Last question here before we wrap it up. We've already doubled our expected runtime for the Probably fifteenth time that this prod this podcast has been a thing, uh, but the last question is: Is there any indication what sort of TV figures NBC is aiming for in their first year of exclusive coverage?
2: I, I certainly have not been able to get those figures yet. I mean, I, I even asked Mark Miles a couple days ago if he could give me a range on the NBC Sports Gold. You know, are they looking for fifty thousand? Are they looking for a hundred thousand this year? Would they be happy? You know, with, with do they need double that, etc. So I, I don't have those figures. I mean. In general, it seems like obviously they want to grow. Um, you know, the, the the series actually did downtick last year. It, you know, did go down in ratings. It wasn't by an, an overly insane amount, but you know, certainly I think the series will want to rebound rebound this year. Um, and so I think, gosh, I, I would have to go check the numbers, but you know, it was somewhere in that 1.1 million range. I think the series averaged last year across all of their races. And so yeah, I mean, you look at the amount of promotion that. NBC is already trying to give to the Indy 500. Hopefully they'll, you know, continue that in all sorts of ways, even beyond the Indy 500. Uh, There's no question. They want to see these ratings grow. You know, they're not going to release their internal projections to us. Um, They just, they wouldn't do that for any series. I mean, they just, they don't see that as something that's beneficial to make that public. They want to keep that private. So I don't really know what their expectations are, but I would think, you know, as long as they're at least flat from last year, they'll be satisfied. And, you know, if they're up one, anywhere from one to nine percent, you know, they'll be very happy. And if they're up more than that, they're going to be just absolutely thrilled. So, yeah, I think, you know, we saw NASCAR President Steve Phelps say flats the new up. That's a little bit simplistic. I mean, you still can get upticks if you have proper star power and things like that. But overall, I think NBC certainly is hoping that minimum to be flat from last year. And, you know, if they're up three to four percent, they'll probably be satisfied. And anything more than that, they'll be extremely happy.
0: I think it's going to come down to two things. One of them is promotion, which we've already seen. that They've been advertising the season and the Indy 500 during NFL games on Sunday Night Football. So I think that's obviously a really positive direction. I don't think I've seen NBC doing that previous season. I certainly didn't see ABC doing that previous seasons uh, in the realm of like football games. Um, so I think that they already have that down. Uh, the, the advertising side, obviously, the more advertising, the merrier. Um, but it's also going to come down to those handful. I think it's six or so races that they have on NBC this year. Uh, obviously, last year NBC had the uh, not NBC ABC had the official network uh, rights, so NBC couldn't broadcast any of the races. They had to be on the cable channel SN. Uh, so I'd be curious if any of those races at the end uh, help bring an uptick in ratings. Generally, they do, uh, but ratings don't necessarily mean everything.
2: Yeah, they got. Um, I think they have eight races on broadcast this year. Um so they got a nice little uptick there, which obviously, you know, you always want to see the more chances you can get in front of more people, um, obviously the the better. So yeah, like again, I think at a at a bare minimum they'll be looking to, to be flat. Um and last year's numbers, um I think they were down, you know, it wasn't it wasn't an insane amount, but but they were off enough where certainly the series is gonna to want to rebound this year.
0: All right. I think that's enough to wrap it up for this IndyCar preview. An hour and 20 minutes worth of TV deals and sponsorships. Um, Didn't honestly expect it to go that far, but if you are an IndyCar fan and you have made it this far into the episode, uh, consider subscribing to the podcast either on YouTube or Google Play or Apple Podcasts or uh, CastBox, since that's a new source. I'll have them all uh, linked on Twitter. if you want to check us out because we will have some more exclusive Indy not exclusive really, but some more uh, IndyCar content, especially in the month of May. I'd love to do a month of May preview, uh, hopefully with another IndyCar driver. We had Zach Vichon in the past. We'll see uh, what we can gather with that. So again, consider subscribing if you want to miss, if you don't want to miss any of that content for the month of May. Uh, Other than that, I appreciate Adam for taking out all this time to help us discuss the upcoming season. Thank you very much for that. Uh, kyle and uh, not kyle <laughs> uh, it's funny that i mentioned definitely kyle, not kyle. <laughs> definitely not <laughs> kyle definitely not kyle but david and kevin for taking time out of their schedule as well uh we got some great input here for the season i uh, hope that everybody uh, enjoys this season we'll have some more discussion going on after the season starts uh, and i hope to see you all there